Philip Corso, a man with a dedicated military career, dropped a bombshell that would forever alter our perception of the cosmos with his book, The Day After Roswell. In this episode, we uncover the secrets, the controversies, and the legacy of a man who dared to challenge the status quo. To not unnewsworthy, two words and two question marks. scoured the podcast world and finally found us newsworthy with steve and jerry where we delve into all things mysterious macabre or out of this world and decide if they are truly newsworthy two words and two question marks why should you work with ed Locke? A better question is, why wouldn't you work with him? He is a proud to support an amazing lender, USA Mortgage. When you work with them, you can expect a home financing experience that is free of hassles and headaches. They have complete control over your loan due to in-house operations such as processing, underwriting, closing, and funding. USA Mortgage represents a lot of fantastic things but they are especially thrilled to partner in several community outreach programs, including Habitat for Humanity, Home Sweet Home, Veterans Community Project, and many, many more. They love going to work every day, which means they love working for you. Ed wants to be your lender for life, so reach out to him today and get the journey started. If you would like more information, please reach out to Edlock at area code 502-680-0953. NMLS 448-908, USA Mortgage NMLS 227-262. USA Mortgage is an equal housing lender. This is not a commitment to lend. Additional terms and conditions may apply. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Doing great. Oh, wow. Hi. That was Fantastic. not the response. <laughs> I was waiting oh, on somebody else. To... I think he waited for me. <laughs> well, guess what, guys? I'm so excited. You are? Yes. Because you got to see me after two weeks? <sighs> Can't say I'll blame you. Yeah, well, I have a better reason to be excited. Okay. Why is that? We have a guest tonight. We do. We do. A return guest. Mr. Clay Davis awesome. is back with us in this episode. Welcome back, Clay. Hi guys, glad to be back with you guys. It's been a while, but uh, yeah, I was real, too excited, long. real excited to be back. And uh, congratulations on your format change. And it seems like that was a, a profitable and good thing for you guys. And it seems like you're you're still growing. So uh, growing like up. a weed, man. Yeah. Growing like a weed. That's fantastic. It's going to grow a lot faster once everybody can see Jerry's beautiful face. Absolutely. Well, that <laughs> kind of goes without saying. Well, I'm hoping to sit. I'm hoping to set the camera up like toward the back of his head, actually, because that's that's the better part of him, to be honest. Are, are, are you trying to suggest that Jerry has a face for radio? Absolutely. He's not suggesting <laughs> it. He has said that for a long time. 
<laughs> that's okay. There's three of us here, and all three of us have a face for idiot. <laughs> so I don't know how we got lucky with what we got lucky with, but man, whew. <laughs> we all can't be pretty like you, Clay. Oh, now, now I'm I'm pretty on the inside. <laughs> so I got a cool for uh, folks that don't know. Clay Davis has two sons. Both of his sons are amazing musicians. One of them, I know for a fact, does it full time. That's what he does for a living. He sings the blues. His name's Jake Hambone Davis. And uh, he does an amazing job. Just want to throw it out there. Uh, the reason I bring that up, Clay, is because Jake sent me a message saying and gave us a great show idea we're going to try to get into in the next couple of months at the very late, you know, uh, least um, about the government conspiracies against musicians he of influence. That by me first before he ran that by you guys. And I was like, yep, send that to Steven. I believe he'll take it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That sounds like something we definitely want to get our teeth into. So we're going to have him on soon. Uh, but Jake is a very promising, young, aspiring musician and, now, that's considered southern Ohio, right, where he lives? Actually, in middle Ohio. Middle Ohio. Yeah, he's right between Cincinnati and Dayton. So That's cool. I used to live in New Lebanon, Ohio, which is to the west of, the west of Dayton. So that's what's wrong with you. Yeah, well, listen, the funny thing about Dayton, Ohio, and anywhere around Dayton, and I'll just, if you live in Dayton and you're listening to the show, send us an email if I'm wrong. It doesn't matter if you need to go to the other side of town or the other side of the street. It's going to take you 30 minutes. <laughs> There's no way around that. It's the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. Yeah, my brother-in-law, he used to live in Columbus, like right outside of Columbus. And I witnessed that. I was like, this traffic is the worst traffic I've ever sat in. <laughs> it's 30 minutes. I don't understand it. Like When I lived up there, I was married to my first wife, who... Uh, Melissa is an awesome person. Not ever going to say a bad word about Melissa. She worked at the Big Lots on the other side of town, right beside a place we're going to talk about tonight, right Pad Air Force Base. Yep. And I worked in what new, you know, right there in, in New Lebanon. But it'll take her 30 minutes to get to work. It also took me 30 minutes to get to work, and I live five minutes from work. It was bizarre. <laughs> but anyway, anyway. So, um, how how are you feeling, Jerry? Is family good? Yep. Everyone you you missed last time. week. Jerry missed last week for the first time in over a year. First that's impressive. When it started. Yeah, that's impressive. And only then because uh, I'd been exposed to my grandsons who were diagnosed with the flu. Brett has young kids at home. We It was right before the Thanksgiving holiday. Figured Steve would have family over and didn't want to introduce the flu virus to you know anyone much less a bunch of young children so um yeah decided to stay home and not get anyone sick well we appreciate it although for the first time in my adult life i did not cook this thanksgiving i left all the cooking responsibilities to cracker barrel every year when you were in retail which many of those years you had to work thanksgiving yeah. day you always i had two years when i yeah. decided to go out and eat over the years. And it was when I had to work on Thanksgiving and yeah. just didn't want to try to do it myself. So 
in addition to that, I, I, first of all, kudos. They had a reduced menu. They got us in and out within an hour, you know, to in, in and set and food within an hour, which on a holiday, that was amazing. Um, but uh, it was good. I didn't like the food I got, it, but it wasn't their fault. It was, you know, I'm picky. Yeah, <laughs> so, very. but um, yeah, it was good. What about you, Brett? Yeah, no, it was awesome. Got to spend time with family. Kids had a lot of fun, ate a lot of good food. Sweet. And we need to talk about another first that happened. Oh. Jerry listened to his first ever podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Not the first ever. Oh, well. The I first have, ever of the first our podcast. <laughs> I, I have listened to two or three others since I've been doing this. But, yeah. It was the first time he ever listened to our podcast. <laughs> that's, first a big, one. that's a big milestone. <laughs> I mean, why would I listen to it again? I was there and heard it firsthand. So he only listened to it to see how bad we trashed it. He was <laughs> like laughing. He was like, "Man, these guys are lost without me." <laughs> <laughs> no, I listened to it because you guys called and said, "Hey, if there's ever one you're going to listen to, this should be <laughs> the one that you're not in." To notice, to know how much we actually need you. Yeah, right. Listen to me stumble over the teaser and how how lost we were. You, you can you guys see did now. A fantastic job, and was tempted to not come back to help the show. <laughs> Bother. You know, you remind me of of Albert Albert Einstein, Jerry. Is that right? How's yeah. that? Well, I mean, you're smart and funny okay. and all that, but um, the problem is, Brett reminds me of Albert's brother. Oh yeah, yeah, no Frank. 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 Einstein. He's a monster. Oh, Frank is done. <laughs> Yeah. Well, going along with that, you know, if at first you don't succeed, I would recommend you not try skydiving. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, why do you say that for last? That was good. Did you guys hear about that new NASA mission? No, I didn't. I don't watch it. Yeah, so they're uh, they're going to launch a new mission to say sorry to aliens about polluting space. Oh, yeah, they're calling it Apollo G. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that's uh, cool. so that's I'm going to I'm going to use uh, Brett. I'm going to use your saying here. Uh, you had a whole week. <laughs> that's what you come up with. No, no actually, I liked it. <laughs> Apollo G. <laughs> Play me. Don't want to leave you out. Dar, put you on the spot. Have you got one for us? Uh, it's it, it, I, I was under pressure, and I came up with a, le- a pretty weak offering. But y- y- you know why pirates are called pirates, don't you? Why? I don't know. They just are. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. True definition of a dead joke. True definition. <laughs> That was good. Absolutely. <laughs> you broke me. <laughs> so, so all pleasantries aside, tonight we're going to talk about a fellow who definitely draws his share of um, uh, admiration from some, scorn from others. Notoriety. Notoriety from an event that he actually wasn't even at. Um, and you got some skeptics, Clay. Oh yes. Are you ready for this? I, I, you know, the, the UFO community wouldn't be anything without the skeptics. So, <laughs> ain't that true? And 
I sit every week. I sit across the table from someone who's that skeptic most weeks. No, not not on UFOs. <laughs> I'm not a UFO skeptic at all. The only reason that you're not is because the fact it's only deemed no. in, you, unidentified That's flying of, objects. First of all, that means that to me, there's no one in the world that can say they don't believe in UFOs. There are certainly yep. things that are in the sky that are unidentified. Yep. So right. I don't think anyone can truthfully say that. But but going further than that, I do believe in UFOs. I don't believe every UFO story. I do believe in some. And this one, Roswell, I think something happened. I don't know what it was. Uh, again, like we've talked about several times, a big part of the problem is the government's refusal to be transparent and honest. When you have people that lie to you and you know they lie to you, we don't tend to say, well, they're probably looking out for my best interest. Well, they're probably trying to make sure I don't get scared and that I'm paranoid. We turn to the dark side real quickly and go, hmm, what is the worst possible reason that we can imagine? <laughs> what is it well, you just said a little while ago? And it's, it's human nature when you don't have all the answers that actually right. going to fill in the blanks with whatever you can possibly muster to make sense of it all. Yes. And, Absolutely. and you're right. Thing you can conjure the up. government has perpetuated a lot of the mystery and enigma surrounding UFOs and aliens and everything else because of the manner in which they have engaged or failed to engage the population. I agree with you. Absolutely. I think it, you know, it's a handy deflection of something when it's convenient to them. That's what I, you know, that's why I believe that they do partial disclosures. When they need to flash the right hand so you don't see what the left hand's doing, oh, look, a UFO. Oh, look, a shiny thing. Oh, look. <laughs> it's something you should be looking at over here, not over here, just like magicians, a sleight of hand. True. I can think of a recent example of when they did this. <laughs> yeah, okay. we were just talking about it before the show. <laughs> let me play devil's advocate for one second. Oh. And here's part of the reason why the government does this. I can't believe we forgot about it up until now. You guys have all heard about the first time that the War of the Worlds was publicly transmitted. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Do you remember the story? At the very, very beginning of the radio broadcast, they announced that it was not true that it was a story that was going to be reenacted. A drama. They, a drama. They did not mention that again until the very end. So what you heard for, I think it was two and a half, three hours, was these radio personalities reading this story that we were being invaded by aliens and they were killing everything and everyone. Do you guys remember what happened? Yeah, pandemonium. In the world. It, around the world. But I, now, hold on, let me finish real yeah. quick. That happened on October 30th, 1938. Roswell was nine years later. Yeah. If you were the one in charge, you're going to think back to what happened on this story <laughs> and think, you know what we really need to do? Tell them the truth. Yeah, yeah. But in every case, no, no humans are being killed. You know, right. they're not, you know, they're not shooting missiles at us. I'm just saying to play devil's advocate, if I was the one making those decisions back then, I'm not for sure that I would have said, well, let's just be totally 100% transparent. One other reason I'm glad I'm not in charge. Yeah. Exactly. So tonight, Clay, would you like to tell the folks who we're going to be ta- chit-chatting about? Well, Stephen, uh, the story that I'm about to convey to your listeners, if they listen closely, 
uh, is probably going to remove a lot of doubt about what has happened with regard to our technology. And it may remove some doubt as to whether we have been visited by alien life forms and their existence, their actual existence. Uh, It's an extraordinary story of tremendous importance, possibly to our history, if it is actually true. Uh, I'm going to tell what I know about this and I'm going to leave it up to your listeners to to decide. Uh, But what we're going to do tonight is kind of outline uh, the story that Colonel Philip J. Corso uh, told in his book, uh, it was called The Day After Roswell. It was a 1997 publication, uh, and it was co-written by a guy named Bill Burns. And uh, basically in this book, an army colonel, who has tremendous credentials that I'm going to highlight in just a few minutes because his background is very important to this story. It actually gives him the credibility that would even give us a reason to do a podcast about this. Um, But in this book, Colonel Corso details how he was tasked with taking materials from the Roswell wreckage and possibly one other wrecked uh, alien craft that I, for some reason I could not go back and he mentioned it in one of these interviews that I listened to and I could not go back and trace it. But apparently these materials came from two downed crafts and how he oversaw uh, a program through the army that infused these materials uh, into um, American industry. Uh, through research and development to enhance and uh, bring forth technologies that we had not discovered yet. Uh, it's it's an amazing story. Uh, let me find my little note here uh, on my introduction here. I like it. You're used well, old school, just like yeah. me. Uh, <laughs> Jerry gives me crap all the time because I still write... I've got a, I've got two notebooks here. He does it all on the computer, and it's all outlined. And I sometimes have to flip a page. <laughs> I, I never give him I, crap I, I to do. play until he lost his notes, <laughs> left them at work, and he's trying to do a show without his notes. Then yeah, I'm saying, why don't you put it online? I, I yeah, do both. Was, I've, yeah. I've kind of hemmed and hawed and done both. I, I thought for this one it was going to be easier for me to put pencil and paper. Uh, but Corso basically divulges – how he spearheaded this Army's reverse engineering program uh, that eventually ended up seeding alien technology uh, at American companies. Companies like IBM, Hughes Aircraft, Bell Labs, Dow Corning, and they did all this without the public's knowledge at the time. Uh, And we'll get into some of that here in a minute, but let me just jump into, if y'all don't mind, I'm just going to jump into Colonel Corso background a little bit and then we'll kind of move through the story a little bit uh the floor is yours very good gentlemen uh who was colonel philip j corso uh the background that i'm about to give you has been thoroughly vetted this man was everywhere he said he was at the times that he said he was there and it's a pretty impressive resume um 
the National Archives uh, has records of all of his whereabouts, the Department of Army Military History, the Army of War College, uh, especially that's where uh, Corso's boss, Lieutenant General Art Trudeau, uh, is handled and regarded as uh, a legend, basically. Uh, so Corso uh, renamed or uh, yeah, Corso remained good friends with Trudeau for 20 years, even after uh, after they served together. After retiring, and had uh, promised Trudeau that he would tell the story after after Trudeau died. He had an uh, he had an, an arrangement. He had an oath with Trudeau that they would remain silent about this. And uh, close to Trudeau's death, he summoned Colonel Corso to his bed and released him from that oath and said that the story needed to be told. Uh, some of Corso's assignments through his career are pretty impressive. He was the director of the Army Foreign Technology Division uh, at the Pentagon. He was a former Army intelligence officer. He was the assistant chief of staff from 1944 to 1947 for the Allied Occupation Forces in Rome, after World War II, uh, he was involved with Operation Paperclip, which also brought German rocket scientists to the United States after World War II. Uh, he was very involved in hand selecting those guys. Um, two of them went on to work on his team. And then uh, he also consulted with uh, Hermann Olbrecht, who was the main German scientist that we got. Uh, he served, Corso served under General MacArthur during the Korean War. Ooh. And from 19, 1953 to 1957, he was a member of the National Security Council under Eisenhower at the White House. Uh, 1961, he was appointed chief of the Foreign Technology Department by Lieutenant General Arthur Trudeau. Uh, this man, over the course of his career, received 19 medals and decorations. He was the real deal. Uh, yeah, it, wow. it, it's a very, very impressive resume that this man had. Um, he worked in uh, R&D and, and classified weapon designs uh, for defense contracts was his primary goal and what his main job was was just assigning budgets for the R&D. He would decide what what right. projects needed how much money. He would send these proposals to uh the general for uh approval and work closely with uh General Trudeau to get these things done, but his primary thing was just coming up with the budgets and then following up to make sure that the research and development was coming along. Uh, Before we get into how everything happened, let me give you just a brief list of the things that Colonel Corso claims his research and development efforts led to as far as technologies that we currently use. And some of these are privately used. Some of these are used by the government. Uh, some of these are, are publicly used, but a lot of these things are things that once I start going down this list, are going to start sounding very familiar to people. <clears throat> Stuff that we developed, 
under this program. The integrated circuit or chip. Uh, some people might remember the Intel Pentium chip of the 90s. Um, that's supposedly where all this came from. Night vision. Night vision goggles that we not only use in the military, but we also use for hunting applications and a variety of other public applications now. Fiber optics came out of this research and development program. Irradiated foods. Direct energy weapons and lasers. Now, direct energy weapons, some may remember if we go back to uh, the fires in Maui just a few months ago in Hawaii, a lot of the mystery around what was causing those fires, there's a lot of conspiracy theories that direct energy weapons were involved in that. I don't know if that's true or not, but the term direct energy weapon is something that we heard a lot of coming out of that area in regard to those anomalies. We also hear about that when it comes to the Cuban sickness for the people that it, were working at the yes, Cuban that embassy. that is true, and I've heard, I've heard accounts of that. It's been a while, but those have kind of died down, but I have heard those. Um, no. Super tenacity fiber fibers, strong fibers that are very difficult to break, penetrate, burn, cut, or whatever. Um, the first heart pump came out of this research and development. A three-wheeled cart that could run on water. Anti-gravity propulsion and ion propulsion drives. Um, direct energy weapons used in the Star Wars defense program, the SDI program for anti-missile defense. Uh, yeah, micro-miniaturization of logic boards. Basically, our com our computer motherboards. We were we figured out how to shrink them down and do a lot more with computers. Um, all of these things were happening about the same time in the nineties. <clears throat> Pretty amazing. Um, portable atomic generators, particle beams, depleted depleted uranium projectiles. These are all the things that General Corso said were resulting from his funding and his R&D projects that he spearheaded and guided. <clears throat> Some of the programs that were developed, like we've just mentioned, the SDI or Star Wars Missile Defense Project, Project Horizon, which a lot of people don't know about and I didn't know about until I started listening to Colonel Corso. Project Horizon <clears throat> was a, <clears throat> excuse me, a program that was coming about just about the same time as the birth of our space program, as we were just learning how to get ourselves out into space. And it was essentially a plan for us to put a colony on the moon. And it was going forward until the project got yanked out from under them. At that time, apparently there was a, well, there's constantly a war amongst agencies for funding. One agency is constantly fighting with another agency that's fighting for another, with another agency, trying to get money out of a pool of funds. It's finite. And uh, apparently. I wish we had that. Not to interrupt you, Clay, but uh, I'm not going to lie. I kind of well, wish we had me, that now. It, to me, to and be the, honest. the reason, the reason <laughs> the one... why true, General Trudeau 
in his recommendation, and and uh, apparently Secretary of State at the time or Secretary of Defense at the time was also resoundingly behind this. Trudeau felt that this was a critical program to have in place, not only to uh, keep an eye on the Russians, uh, who we were still embroiled in a Cold War with and uh, uh, arms buildup with at that time. He he felt that it was necessary for us to have an advantage uh, to be able to combat any nuclear missiles that they might possibly launch at us if we had some way of doing that or observing that or even striking from the moon. But further than that, Trudeau felt that it was imperative to have some kind of uh, moon base in order to uh, be more observant about what's coming at us from extraterrestrial uh, destinations. <clears throat> Clay, Clay, just one quick question. Is this project declassified now? I, I so think is this something that we can probably look it up. I haven't done a whole lot of snooping around on it yet, but it is on my list now. <clears throat> um, but it is a project that never got off the ground. Uh, it, it was a proposal and never got funded. Uh, but yeah, I think it's something we talked about just for the fact of just building space like rockets in yes. space right we'd, we'd yeah. be able to do it so much cheaper if we had some sort of way to do that on the moon or where we didn't have to spend all of the payload on the fuel to get out of the atmosphere yeah, and then because uh, once you're in space a very small yeah. motor will propel you you don't need There's no the friction huge yeah i mean right you could just as long as you can avoid all the space junk yeah. <laughs> <laughs> apology i'm telling you Oh, yeah. Sorry, Clay. No, we just keep right. interrupting um, And then Project HARP is believed to have come out of this as well. So we've got a list of things, and we've got a list of, of uh, projects that developed out of this. Um, and we've got a little bit of background now about Colonel Corso. Uh, before we get into how he went about doing all that, um, interestingly... In 1947, <laughs> Philip Corso uh, was a lieutenant colonel at that time, and he was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas. And he had only been there for about a month. And on that particular fateful night uh, in July of 1947, he had been assigned as the post duty officer. For that night, and for folks that aren't uh, 100% familiar with military protocol, the post duty officer's primary responsibility, uh, when assigned, is to make sure the base security is on the up and up. That your guards are not asleep at their post at 3 a.m. Uh, that everybody is at their post. That everything that the base is secured uh, as it should be. Um, that night at Fort Riley, Kansas, some trucks arrived at the base with what was described as sensitive cargo that was in transit. Uh, that means it, you know, it, it was still moving. They were just coming there as a waypoint between where, uh, where they were coming from and where they were going to. Um, Corso was notified that night by his guards uh, and that these trucks had showed up unannounced and came to inspect the cargo. 
and he directed the guard, who was a sergeant, to return to his post in case the cargo was classified. Corso took a quick view of the cargo. Upon first view, he thought he was looking at the remains of a child. But within these crates, uh, upon closer uh, review, he described seeing what he, uh, as he described, was an extraterrestrial with skinny arms, skinny legs. It was under five feet in height with a large head, slanted eyes, no nose, no mouth, no ears. It was gray colored and floating in liquid. When asked <clears throat> where the where these bodies were going, Corso stated that the five trucks had come from an airbase in New Mexico and they were headed toward Wright-Patterson Air Force Base via Route 40. Well, about, back in 47, about the only way that you could make that trip was on Route 40. <clears throat> Corso stated that <clears throat> what he saw was eventually uh, corroborated. Um, he, at the time, he, w- once he saw what he saw, he had kind of put it out of his mind because he he could not corroborate other than what he saw with his eyes, but he had no other information to go by. Um, eventually, later on down the road, it was corroborated. Um, because they had, they had actually financed a later on in his research and development work, they had financed a laboratory at Walter Reed military hospital for research and development. Uh, what he came to find out was this lab actually had toxicology and autopsy reports on the extraterrestrial subjects that Corso saw. These reports included were included in uh, the Roswell file that Corso was eventually given when he was given uh, these materials that came from Roswell. Uh, <clears throat> this is important because eventually uh it became clear to Corso that the extraterrestrials were actually a primary functioning part of the spacecraft. That is to say that uh, in that they were the actual guidance navigational component of the ship and that they were likely they after many failures of trying to uh, reverse engineer these craft um, they came to the conclusion that it was highly likely that these uh, extraterrestrial beings were likely clones, that they had been built specifically by some form of intelligence for space travel. This became evident when the military kept failing at reverse engineering these disks and they could never get them off the ground. Um, Corso went on to say that, as we all know, man seemingly was not intended for space travel. How do we know that? Every person that goes up in space loses bone mass, muscle density. They have negative effects to their brain functions. If they spend any period, long period of time, like some of these folks that are on, like when the Mir space station was up there or um, the International Space Station, These folks that are coming off of those things after spending many months and many months are not in the best physical shape. They have to literally be carried off of these off of, off of these vessels. 
if, if you don't mind, I just want to interject there for a second. Um, I, I, I guess that's most of that is, is due to the, yeah. the lack of gravity. When we go to the, we, we don't have any sort of artificial we, gravity. Most of the stuff that I've looked at, it seems like feet. it seems like the UFOs have somehow the reason they can, you know, go so long is they have that artificial gravity or some sort of like Bob Lazar talks yes. about that sphere that he talks about, where they've kind of simulated gravity in some sort of. The other, fashion. the other one cool thing about being on the space station that long is, yeah, you age slower. Right, because you're going faster. Yeah, you got you know they relativity. The, the the weird time thing starts to happen. The longer you're up there, the less you age. Einstein was. I just genius, think that's man. pretty neat <laughs> to come up with that. Yeah, theory of relativity. Anyways, sorry. To sorry, we were just yeah. yeah. No, just wanted to nerd out for a second. Well, there's a huge. I mean, yeah. that that's a known thing now, and and the astronauts that go up there have to spend X number of hours just doing work to work their muscles. When they, I've, I've even heard like people talk about. You know, even with the technology we have right now, I mean, we can make, you know, a spinning spaceship where it spins a certain amount to where you could walk on the walls. It would somehow simulate gravity that way. We don't have obviously have the, a way to simulate gravity the way that we understand it without some sort of, you know, centrifugal force. Oh, no. Um, more details from the autopsies uh, that came out, uh, they found out that. These creatures had no digestive system, no vocal cords, no ears. They're, they had four lobes in their brain and that they communi- communicated through telepathy. Um, they, at that point, started to call these biological entities. They weren't sure that they were anything but created. Um, so they just started to call them biological entities. Um So yeah, the uh, the the uh, autopsy also, uh, interestingly, <laughs> reports uh, a, a detail uh, that becomes very important later when we start talking about some of the materials that Corso was working with. Um, the autopsy said that these creatures contained an extra eyelid. Uh, and these eyelids behaved in a very peculiar manner. Uh, they weren't like an animal's extra eyelid that is there to keep out sand and debris. These eyelids actually collected light and they allowed the creatures to see at night. A lot of times, um, alien encounters <laughs> that people have reported, a good number of them are actually happening at night. Um, there's not a whole lot of daytime, daytime encounters. So I found that to be very interesting. Uh, the report autopsy report went on to say that these were not biological eyelids, but were actually technological. Uh, they were an addition, uh, like a pair of sunglasses that you would put on. Uh, these eyelids Corso reveals were the basis for the night vision technology that we use today. And they were actually included in the filing cabinet of, of materials that General Trudeau gave to Corso to develop a plan on research and development for. Um, let's see here. Sure. Quick question, Clay. 
When we talk about these entities being clones, how does that offset with the hundreds of close encounters of the fourth kind, which is actual interaction with humans and aliens, where 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 the the greys, if you will, do experiments, they take them up into the ships. If they're clones, are they do they still have the well, intelligence I, to be able to do I that? I would do you submit think? or is and, that... and I you know, this is just me piecing things together because again, we have a lot of questions and not a lot of answers. But um breaking away from some of the material that I came up with while researching Colonel or Colonel Corso, um, and some of my other uh, research endeavors, I've come across several quote unquote UFO experts and people whistleblowers and people who suggest that there's more than one species that's actually coming here. Um, I, I've heard that there are as many as gotcha. seven to nine. I don't know how accurate that is. I don't know how true that is. Uh, but well, <laughs> is it I, bad I can name most of let, them? Let's hear it. <laughs> give, 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 give us a rundown. Well, you have you have your grays. That's the one that most people think about when they think of aliens. Your, your little, uh, you actually those are what we call tall grays. You have your small greens, which is what most people see when they see pictures of aliens. Those two are very similar. Their differences in color and stature. Then you have the draconians, which are the lizard people. <laughs> Jerry's shaking his head at me right now. Um, which most people think are the ones that are responsible for if you go down this road um, and if you believe this mindset, they are the ones that are responsible for shape-shifting, for being able to uh, become president, to be in influential places, to um, uh, take, they're the ones that are hostile towards humans, would like to control us and dominate us. Uh, then you have the, uh, and I forget the name, it starts with an A, but they are like the superhumans. Um, they're the, the pure angelic type, uh, uh, the, but they're very, they're much, much larger than us. Um, and there's a couple of others that I can't remember off the top of my right. head, but um, you get the picture. Then, of course, there's always the uh, Anunnaki, which are history recorded from a long time ago, which the Anunnaki and the humans met, did their thing, created the Nephilim. Oh, yeah. But that's a whole different and, show for and, a whole different time. So <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Joe Biden is probably not saying that. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's our theories that he is one of the uh, there, yeah, there uh, reptile. Yeah, if you were trying to be a human president, that's I think probably you would not. act a with a little more sense than he's got. <laughs> but anyways, and then, I don't all right, let's get back more, to Mr. Corso. One, yeah, one so more little uh, what we're gonna tidbit do on the the variety yeah. of alien creatures that may be visiting us. It's also widely understood or believed that they don't all get along either. <laughs> so there, there's a bit of a power struggle that right, may right, be right. going on there. And then there's also some conjecture that 
there are some that are friendly to humanity and there are others that have been trying to pit us against each other uh, for quite some time now. And that some of the things that did happen between the United States and Russia may have been stirred up by one of those factions. But that's, again, probably uh, another another podcast. and here's one other real quick thing about that. And I forget who made the quote. And I think it was during my research for Mr. Corso tonight, how somebody, if you were an alien race and you were worried, because we've talked in the last few weeks about how aliens are extremely interested in our ability to split the atom in nuclear power. Um, how if, they have the ability to see where our nuclear weapons are. They can also follow the trajectories Mm -hmm. of where those nuclear weapons are aimed. And how funny it would be if you were an alien coming to this world and all of the weapons were aimed at each other as opposed to into outer space where you, if you were an alien, if you knew what was out there, um, all the threats and dangers that were posed to your planet, and yet you you're aiming your biggest, baddest weapons at each other. <laughs> yeah, and that's a, that's one thing we kind of talked about is if they, aliens they would, really want to destroy have. us, yes. they could have done it a long time ago. I, I think I think Which it comes is, down to more like when they come past our our speak, world, speak, they lock their door. Speak, <laughs> it's like going through a bad a neighborhood. Critical <laughs> point that really can't be overlooked, though. It is astounding to me that seemingly the majority of alien interest in us seem to really spike and become prevalent about the same time that nuclear weapons were being developed here. Um, That's when things really started to heat up. And uh, I actually heard one uh, expert say that, you know, even with our, in comparison, our rudimentary technology in comparison to, to theirs, we have nowadays satellites that can actually um, detect when a star billions of light years away goes supernova. If, if we have a satellite that can do that, then it's really not out of the realm of possibility that they have some kind of technology that where nuclear explosions previously did not show up on a a scale of microwaves or whatever, however it would show up uh, to be detected, all of a sudden it does show up that they may have, they may have had some technology that said there's a planet out there that's going nuclear. We need to go take a look at that. Um, So I think the, just just being the, I'm gonna play the skeptic for today. But uh, just just the the fact that so that may be, I think I think you bring up a good point that that may be the case. But I think the the biggest thing would be where they're traveling from and how fast they're traveling to us. That's and like how long that information would take to get there and come it, back. Exactly, it's the speed of light. Yeah, how many? Most of the livable planets that we have found are hundreds, if not thousands, of light years away. Yeah. That's a one-way trip. So for information to be able to travel 
two-way trip here and back is going to take several hundred or several thousand years at the speed of light. Yeah. Now, you guys are assuming. Now, let me play devil's advocate to use devil's advocate. I'm not talking about about ships traveling. I'm talking about this information. I understand. But we have recorded history of things in the air since we could draw on caves. That's a good point. So there's very likely some of the asteroids in the asteroid belt outside of our outside of our planet could potentially, and we don't know. We wouldn't know unless they wanted us to. Those could be probes. They could be listening devices that have capabilities to that are better than speed of light. See, the thing with aliens it and the things get- that are hard to understand is for us is we have a limited understanding of the way that the universe works. Sure. Who's to say that they don't have a better understanding? Well, so we, we base mean, everything on speed of light. That doesn't mean that they can make light travel well, faster and, than and, the universe can. I understand, but that doesn't mean they don't have wormhole technology. Right. Worm, that doesn't mean that they don't have that's warp sucking drive. in everything. No. Then how would this information get to the wormhole? It would be a transmitted. Oh, well, let's pick and, this and, up. Let's transmit this now. How long would it take to get to that? Is my point. Depends if it's going through a wormhole. It wouldn't. It'd be instant. How long does it take to get to the wormhole? It just depends. At the speed of light, because we would detect a wormhole that was close. Sure. And we, we can, like, we detect black holes. We know where we are. But anyways, we're anyways, way off topic. We're, we're, me See and what Jared, you did, Clay. For some reason, I've teamed up with Jerry today. Just, just to feed I'm the skeptics a little bit. I'm going to go here. Um, one of my biggest problems with UFO and alien stuff throughout my entire existence has been what are, who's the dude from Ancient Aliens with the big afro and he's always, you know, alien. Uh, yes. Okay. This Giorgio Terrialakis. And this gets and back to the butching, first Roswell episode y'all did, where Jerry said there's always more questions than answers. It, one of my biggest problems is with the alien thing, because like you were saying, Stephen, it's so easy for us to say, well, you just don't know what the aliens have. And we have such a limited understanding of the universe. And it's very possible that they may know things that we don't. Well, everything is so easily explained off by Giorgio saying aliens, you know, that you, you can, you can literally explain off anything <laughs> that can't be explained by saying, well, the aliens can do it and we can't. And we don't know that. We, we, we know what we know and we don't know what we don't know. And, and, and we are constant. It is the human condition that we are constantly trying to answer where the hell we came from and why the hell we're here. And those, and those things we, since (laughs) the dawn of man, we've been looking to the sky for answers and we have, as we we were discussing earlier, when we don't have all the answers, it's human nature to fill in the blanks with sometimes the most sensible stuff, but also sometimes the craziest shit you could possibly imagine, because that's what makes sense to us. And my big problem with the whole alien thing has how easily dismissed anybody who brings up any kind of skepticism can be dismissed by just saying, oh, you know, aliens, man, you know, aliens, dude, they you know, 
I, I, I know I, I Jerry gets angry as hell you know, sometimes because you do that. <laughs> <laughs> he does, but I'll tell you one one thing. There's there's a theory out there that I am buying into more and more and more as time goes on. The more research I do, the more shows we do, the more episodes I do. First of all, and, and what, this is way off topic. What, I know it, but some you know it's our show. <laughs> we can make this go as long as we want. Right? <laughs> um, so um, to be off topic for just a second. Um, in every single civilization, every single documented civilization since the beginning of time, there, everyone, regardless if they're in Africa, if they're in the Middle East, if they're in Finland, if they are in South America, every single civilization has a flood story. Everyone. Um, that it doesn't matter if you're Christian, if you're Buddhist, if you're doesn't matter your religion, there is a flood story attached to your civilization. I am beginning, and, and just the way the world works, if every human were to leave Earth right now in some cataclysm, within a, a, a 10,000 years, the only things remaining of us are stone features. Within a million, even those are waning. I am. Twinkies uh, would still be here. Twinkies would still be here, absolutely, <laughs> uh, with all those preservatives. Yeah, but but the thing is, I am believing more and more that our civilization isn't necessarily the first civilization here on Earth. Um, we've already proven with Gobekli Tepe that our archaeologists were way off. They've already proven. You know, when we were in school, most of us, probably not you, Brett, because you're a baby, but the rest of us were always taught that humans got to North America through the Bering Strait Bridge. Well, we've already proven that that's way off. Um, We were here up to 24,000 years ago, as opposed to the 12,000 that we were taught in high school. So what's to say that there aren't civilizations that were here before us? Because one of the things that people always talk about, and go back to Tepe, we didn't have the technology to make that. We didn't have the technology to build that, to move those pieces, to carve that stone. So who's to say? And then, you know, Giorgio would be like, well, the aliens did it. They moved them there, right? But who's to say they weren't there from a yeah. previous civilization that was wiped out in the flood? I would like to add something to what you said about every civilization having a flood story. Not everyone that I've heard of, but the vast majority of civilizations somewhere along the line have stories of unexplained objects from the sky. Absolutely, they do. Yeah. So not just a flood story, but unexplained things from the sky. Bible is in everywhere. With most civilizations. One of the things that always struck me with people and skeptics of UFOs, um, because I, I am very much a believer. We're we're all believers, I think. Yeah. As far as so, is is the ancient paintings that have when there was no flying objects, there was no planes, there was no balloons, there was no dirigibles, there were there was nothing but birds in the sky, and they're painting these things with flames coming out the bottom and flying around. You know, that to me 
is proof. They had no reason to stick that there. They wouldn't have had the mental capacity to say, well, if I were going to fly something, it, it I'd is, put a fire it, it on It is documentation. I, I agree. Right? <laughs> For me, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Right. So anyway, back yeah. to Mr. Corso. Let's Wait. wrap Mr. Corso up so we can finish. Oh, no. <laughs> It's all intermingled. Uh, but let's let's get in. Let's get into General Corso's filing cabinet um, when he was. Yeah, this this is this is where things get a little wacky. Part. And uh, but the conclusions lead one to 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 really stop for a minute and think about all this. So it's 1961. And Colonel Corso has been uh, pretty much assigned to, at that time, what was called the uh, Foreign, oh, what is it called? Yeah. Yes. Foreign Technology and Desk at the Army Research and Development Center. Setting up a team of engineers, and he was also given two of the German atomic scientists that we acquired um, to be on his team on a fateful day, uh, as the colonel tells it, uh, that a filing cabinet was delivered to his office uh, by General Trudeau, um, the contents of which he was asked to examine. (laughs) And Corso was advised uh, that the contents were not run of the mill, (laughs) not run of the not run of the mill foreign stuff. And, and to this right. point, the foreign materials that they were dealing with were like the, they had discovered that the Germans had developed a, a, a very good infrared device. And they were trying to figure that out. They were trying to figure out what the Russians had by, by foreign. They, they were talking about our, our terrestrial enemies. Uh, so when, when Corso was advised that the contents were not run-of-the-mill foreign stuff, uh, that that was that was uh, they weren't kidding. <laughs> um, he was directed to review the Roswell files before writing yeah. any summary or recommendations uh, regarding the contents of the file. But Trudeau made it very clear that he wanted a written proposal on how to move forward on research and development of these materials and what they could possibly yield. That's kind of leading me to believe that this shit sat around from 1947 until the 1960s with very little, very little uh, investigation or uh, any kind of research and development on our part. I, I don't know if that's the case, but we're going from 1947 to 1961 before they even tried to task somebody with a plan. And the military generally doesn't do anything without a concise plan. So the fact that they weren't up with a plan until, yeah, 1961. Oh, Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> with our alien president, Joe Biden. So to me, I found that to be, that, that was one of the things that I, first of all, kind of set off some flags for me. I was like, okay, that, that to me sounds very bizarre, especially when it became clear in this book that 
those very same German scientists that came over and joined us, one of the first things they told us was that Germany actually had acquired a downcraft before we did and had gotten very far uh, as far as figuring it out. Um, and I think you guys, I've seen it. I'm hoping you guys in your in your internet travels and so on and so forth have seen the bell-shaped craft that the developed. Yes. Now, yeah, we were talking about it to today. me when you start lining up the time frames and the scientists that were saying they had this and you start looking at what they were building, it all kind of adds up that that probably was true. The Germans may have gotten their hands on a downed craft and being the industrious population of people that they are, they dove right in on it and started, especially Hitler running things and, and what he wanted to try to accomplish. Sure. He, I'm sure, was saying these are the things that are going to change the tide. So, so, so just a couple of three things on, on, on that since you brought it up, Clay. Uh, first of all, Hitler was, they, they've, they've now oh, discovered yes. that Hitler was drugged yeah. out of his mind. Yes, on and, every and on downers to sleep at night. So go. he was going both ways. I um, mean, he was right. Yeah. So, yeah. but he had a huge him, and especially Goebel had a huge belief in the occult and anything of a religious connotation. And not only that. When they created the bell, the bell was supposed to be created as a time machine that operated under, we talked about it earlier, mm -hmm. the, the power of the spin and the, the ability yes. of the spin and the electromagnetic fields. There's a whole big thing. Um, but they also had created the first jets. You know, had they been able to get the jet onto the airfield yep. and into practicality battle, could have changed the whole war. Um, they had invented a circular jet that had, defies all logic, um, and we had seen a few of those. We actually, if you go to Rat, Wright Pat Air Force Base, the last time I was up there, they had one, or at least a model of one. It was a round ship, uh, had a, but it did have a tail on the end of it for stability, for for stability, um, and that was a single pilot craft that if we saw it flying would look very much like an alien um so they had these things and for bonus do either one of you guys know when all the jerk we we stole paper, all the paper. germans after world war ii what that was called yeah there was an operation name for that i don't remember operation paperclip paper right. clay you get a two pound bag of self-esteem too, too bad it's not two pounds or something else but really, <laughs> it's a big bag it is a big bag <laughs> I don't have access to that. Sorry. I mean, if, if Kentucky of changes course. their law soon, Wait, as long as we're I, talking about candy here, right? Right. Yeah. If Kentucky will change oh. their law soon, then while I still have they, cancer, they, maybe they, I can they get access. It. But it's until going, then, it'll be in effect in about a year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope not Me to have too. cancer in a year and a half. But it, <laughs> getting, back, getting back to this filing cabinet. All right. Uh, Sorry. Back so to Mr. Trudeau Corso. gives this, uh, gives Colonel Corso uh, the filing cabinet. And he said, Phil, 
There's some things in there, and I want you to develop a program for the utilization and exploitation of these. I want you to take it to the folks doing applied engineering in industry on this. Find them and develop a plan for, for me. So they started looking at Fortune 500 companies that were already starting to do some rudimentary work in these fields. And they, they targeted those folks so that they could fund more of their work and then slowly, if necessary, if things hit a bit of a lull, integrate their work or enhance their work by actually giving them some of these materials that Corso had in his cabinet. So now that we've just skirted around that and teased everybody with what was in this filing cabinet, let's start breaking down some of the items uh, that were in there. Uh, but just as a personal or a little aside note, General Trudeau referred to this filing cabinet as Corso's junk drawer, and he said whenever he opened it, UFOs flew out. So I, I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, but Corso said when he laid it all out the first time, it looked like a bunch of junk. And what I'm about to tell you, you're probably going to think the very same thing. So the contents of this filing cabinet uh, included items like uh, a, a postcard size paper-thin piece of metal. Uh, Corso said it had all of the atoms in it were aligned, giving the metal a tremendous strength. Radiation wouldn't go pass through it. You couldn't shoot through it. You couldn't bend it, fold it, wrinkle it up without it going back to its original state. Um, yes. Well, and, and, and oddly, yeah. now we now we have that technology. Corso yeah. sent this um, piece of material to MIT to have them look at it. MIT did extensive work on it. Corso admitted that they tried and tried and tried, and they could not duplicate this material. So up until '97, when Corso did the interviews that I listened to. We had not been able to duplicate this. It seems now that maybe we have. <laughs> so, um, but that was just one item. Another item that was in this filing cabinet was a piece of string, uh, literally a piece of thread. Um, again, he described it as the atoms being aligned in this piece of thread so that it couldn't be cut, burnt. It had tremendous tensile strength. Uh, it couldn't be cut or burned. It had the consistency of thread. The closest terrestrial substance that they could find to this material was actually a spider web. Um, and Corso funded Wy Wyoming University at the time to try to duplicate this uh, product uh, so that they could make flat jackets out of it. Um, in order to do that, Corso tried to get them to clone, to develop, to, to, to breed a spider that could create this thread and then clone it so that they could have enough material to make flag jackets for their soldiers. Yeah. And again, again, Peter Parker. 
they, they failed. Everyone they failed at this. Uh, they they <laughs> were unable to do Oscar. that. Um, there was also a random bunch of wires in there. Um, Corso said that light was emitted from them, but that they, they were not understood at the time. Uh, research and development contracts with private industry later produced fiber tech, fiber optic technology from these. So the fiber tech, fiber optic technology that we now have strewn all across this nation supposedly came from these wires and uh, they were uh, developed uh, also through his budget research and development. Um, another item that was in this filing cabinet was a device that emitted a laser for cutting. At first, Corso didn't know how to, how to turn the thing on. Uh, he had a normal human response uh, when he first picked it up, and, and, he, and he, he tried to turn it on, and it wouldn't turn on. So his na his natural reaction was he thought the batteries were dead. <laughs> his, his guy, he had very little technical knowledge about this. He was just really wow. good at getting people together and spearheading things. Um, so he took this device to an Army electronics lab in Monmouth. As he passed into an area of the lab that actually had radiation, low, low levels of radiation, the device powered up. Um, he ended up leaving this device with the engineers and the technicians at Monmouth for development. Um, lasers and apparently uh, direct energy weapons were the end result uh, of that. Um, but Corso... Oversaw, oversaw all aspects of R&D, both within the military and in the private sector. He would provide budgets. He would provide funding based on the progress of the work uh, that was being done. He was working closely with uh, places like IBM, Dow Corning. Uh, the military eventually looked for uh, industry that was doing uh, similar work in these various fields so that it would not look overly suspicious when major breakthroughs were made. They even encouraged the companies to retain the patents on whatever they developed to also kind of cover their tracks and make it look like it was a natural progression. Uh, typically, as I understand it, most R&D contracts uh, that yield results the military actually maintains the patents on those. Well, in this case, Corso encouraged these companies to maintain the patents. And I think because of that, you started seeing things like fiber optics and things like that actually making it out into the public. Um, whereas, what's that? Oh, so, yeah. no, that's all right. No, no, I didn't mean to cut you off, Clay. I'm sorry. So I have a few questions. We we got to wrap this up here in about the next fifteen minutes or so. Um, I know we can always re retouch this if we need to at a later time. Sure, but I wanted Absolutely. to open it up. Do you feel like I'll answering do my, some I'll questions or taking some questions for the last fifteen minutes? Uh, First, not before we do that, no other other have than a big finale. I just want to say this, uh, and I kind of I kind of okay. said before the show, right. when we were kind of talking and discussing things, uh, 
I was kind of skeptical about UFOs for the majority of my life, too, until um, the government started talking about it in the, the manner in which they've been coming forth, sharing videos with us, trying to tell us that uh, they're not sure where these things are coming from. When the government starts telling me stuff and anybody who's listened to my previous appearances on your all's beloved podcast knows that I have a huge distrust and even bigger disdain for government. And when they start talking about shit, I start paying attention. So they started aggressively talking about UFOs and I'm like, they're doing that for a reason. Um, what my conclusions are this, <clears throat> what I do know after looking at what I've looked at is that aliens and UFOs exist. Not only that, we have them. We have aliens and we have craft. Those things I believe to be true. I agree. Yeah, no, I 100% I agree. I, I, one question I have for you, I guess. So when I was researching uh, this guy in the book and everything, one thing that kind of stood out to me is if this was all true, the reason the, I feel the like re the government the reason they did this, not this book coming out is that and that was and, kind and of one thing that's close examination me. of what Corso said. <clears throat> Corso didn't divulge anything that isn't already known. We all know about uh, fiber optics. We all know about night vision. We all know about a lot of these things. We all know about SDI, Star Wars, a lot and. When he did discuss classified things like lasers and direct energy weapons, he did so in a very um, nondescript way. Nothing that he discussed was actually classified. Actually, everything in his filing cabinet was classified, and he says that himself in his book. Yet he tells us everything that came from the filing cabinet. He tells us that he was able to take this information and cede it to uh, corporations. That itself is classified, which he says in his book. Now, according to him, somewhere between 1947 when Roswell occurred and 19, mid-1990s when he began writing his book, it was published in 1997, 50 years later from Roswell. But somewhere in that 50-year time period, everything became declassified. Otherwise, his book absolutely did contain tons of information that, again, in the book, he says was classified. So he would have been committing multiple felonies. He would have been sent to prison immediately, according to him, if it wasn't classified. My question would be, if and when it was declassified, why is he the only person in the world that has saw fit to mention any of it. And think about it. All of the companies that he went to and seeded information that he claims, why has not one company verified that that happened? Uh, actually, one military actually person been able to verify anything that he said? forward and verified that, that Corso did seed uh, information and technology for them. And a former director of, uh, oh, 
Skunk Works. Oh, what is the name of the uh, military industry? Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, uh, former director. Lockheed Martin came out and 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 without saying Corso's name, basically verified a lot of the things that Corso had said, and he went further to say, "We are not alone. We have craft." We have aliens, basically the same things that I said. And this guy was a director of a military industrial complex business. So there, there, there. Don't get, don't get me wrong. I, I don't dispute UFOs. I don't dispute anything that you're saying. I do have problems with Caruso's, uh, Caruso's book. I read uh, approximately 25% of it. And there's huge parts of it that absolutely does not go along with any of the f- official reports that happened at the time. One example, according to the reports that happened at the time, there was a rancher who's, I forget his name, that the crash happened on. It happened on his land. He and his wife the following day uh, discovered the debris. He didn't have a phone. Several days later, the next time he went into town, he notified the sheriff's department. The sheriff at that point notified the army, and that's when everything happened. And, excuse me, that was confirmed by the report that the Associated Press released. And I'll find that in just a minute. And they said that... uh, that the the craft had been uh, found the previous week, according to Corso's book, Corso Corso's book, the night that it happened, the fire department was there, the sheriff was there, the military was there. By four thirty in the morning, several hours before daybreak, the very night that it happened, that goes against everything that happened at the time. Every report, there's newspaper articles. Um, there's a ton of evidence that that several days transpired from the time that the crash originally happened until the army, the military was made aware of it. Not in his book. Within his book, within a few hours, everyone was there. Um, keep in mind, again, this he worked right. here from 1961 to 1963. He didn't write the book until the mid-90s, 35 years later. He says in his book that it was classified information that he was not allowed he, he to make yeah. copies. He, he was did, not allowed to take anything. He says that he d- uh, he was very adamant about, all that. about not taking. He said so. In other words, he job. says, "I'm sorry." Yes, which he almost had to be because otherwise he's admitting to felonies. But in doing so, he's also saying that he wrote this book 35 years after the fact from memory, which would certainly explain some of the inconsistencies. But it certainly does not add credibility to the book itself. Uh, here, I guess, is one of my biggest things to believe this book. I'm not talking about Roswell. I believe in Roswell. I have a problem, several problems with this book. But one of the things that, that have, has to happen for us to believe this book, we have to believe that everything in this book happened. Secondly, we have to believe that at some point from 1947 to 1997, everything was declassified and that all of that information that he reported on we have to believe that he's the only person in the military that has ever acknowledged the existence of any of it. 
No other military person. Again, in 63, when he retired and left office, that filing cabinet didn't go with him. It stayed there. No one else that ever saw it has said they have saw anything. Uh, so it, it's to believe the book requires a ton of uh, he, he, he was belief in him. Asked, uh, and there's no what there's happened nothing to, to back the contents it up. Well, of the filing cabinet. I'll just, say, I'll just say this. And he admitted that he didn't know. Uh, he was hands off at that time. It was handed off to the next person that took General Trudeau's um, position after he retired. Um, and that uh, he was certain that there was still ongoing uh, examination and research and development of these things. It was Corso's contention that when asked what percent of how how much did we actually get out of this stuff that we could have possibly gotten? Corso felt that we had gotten less than 5% of the potential of what was possible out of these materials. Uh, one of his, one of his quotes, Clay, I think will sum up what you're trying to say. Uh, Corso was quoted as to say, and I quote, he, he felt the like they should have done they a gave hell of a lot was more, bodies, mainly because they we didn't were do enough such an them. integral part of the craft themselves that the craft could not operate without them. Yes. Yes. Right. It's almost like a sure. symbiotic relationship, the craft and the, the pilot. I have a couple questions for you, Clay, real quick. Um, in all the interviews I watched of Corso, the one thing I noticed is his story never wavered. And I, I really, his his credentials, impeccable. No one here is going right. to dis, discount his credentials. Not necessarily um, in his, did you ever find credibility, in his uh, credibility. I think in your research? as Jerry kind of a lady, uh, uh, kind of uh, hit on there, where there was such a large amount of time from where he told his story, and from memory, some of those things may have been a little foggy. The man was 82 years old at the time that this was written. Uh, he was asked why. All right. Uh, why he wrote this book and his response was, was twofold. It was mainly out of, um, allegiance to Trudeau who had held him to an oath of silence until his death. And it was even asked, why did Trudeau want to wait until his death? Well, Trudeau basically said, Anybody who talks about this stuff is referred to as a kook, and at that time, true. Um, but he felt like the story, the story, the story needed to be told yeah. so that humanity would know still is what was going on for the betterment of humanity. But also, his two grandchildren had always asked him, Corso, or Hey, Grandpa, what did you do in the war? And he kept trying to explain it. And he said, man, I really need to kind of leave a legacy for my kids. They're generally, or my grandkids are generally interested in what I did. And what I did was pretty significant. Uh, and if what he says is true, it really is. And it does kind of change the history right. of how we got to where we are right now. Uh, oh, no, no, no. That well, if you look, oh, I don't mean to cut you off. I, I keep. 
if you look 20, 20 years prior to Roswell, uh, the Roswell incident, we had barely learned to fly with the Wright brothers. We were just, no, that's not true. 20 years prior to Roswell, Lindbergh in a single engine plane was making his first flight over the Atlantic. However, 20 years after Roswell, we're sending a man to the moon. Yeah. I mean, then, there's a huge. That's yeah. The, yeah, that's now that's forty years against. That's forty years. Did we land on the moon? That was that's one of the big arguments. It's right. So it, my my second question, really, Clay, in one of the interviews, uh, Corso was talking about spies. That there were spies throughout their the CIA organization that they Corso, actually had CIA to use counter spies to get by rid of the spies. A vast majority because of Stalin. Yes. Right, right. Because Stalin was obsessed with getting the information about Roswell. Um, that alone tells me that Roswell happened. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was real, that he had enough credible as, you know, military dictators, unless you're crazy, unless you're hopped up on bills. And the only reason I brought that up was because of this question. You know, uh, if if you're hopped up on, on the types of drugs that the Quaaludes and, and everything that Hitler was taking, you're likely to believe everything. Stalin was not. Stalin was a very... Uh, Reserved individual, you know, he didn't. He, of course, all Russian, most Russians drink vodka, but you know, uh, they they that's just the way of life. It's no different than Irish people drinking beer. I mean, it just is. But very reserved, didn't do that kinds of things, and was obsessed. Well, the Russians with have, but uh, they, they. I was under the impression yeah, that they the, had had their own even said that uh, Germany, Russia, Canada. Yeah, that's what I thought. United States, and I'm seems like I'm omitting one, but th- those were the major countries that had down craft and were actually doing R and D on them. Um, Mexico had one, but I think we took possession of it, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, um, y- yes, well, I, and 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 I could right. see where Stalin would be very interested in finding out. What we found out, uh, Corso spent a considerable amount of time talking about um, the inner war that was between the intelligence agencies and the military and the Department of Defense and how the Army knew at the time the critical imperative nature of keeping a lot of this out of the hands of the CIA because the CIA had been compromised and the CIA at that point um, was giving bad intelligence based on uh, doctrine instead of actual events to the president. Um, Yes. And it's still going on to this day. Um, The CIA CIA is an intelligence gathering organization has spent and you, you, inordinate amount of time keeping us in perpetual wars during the entire existence uh, of, of the agency. That's what they, that's what <laughs> they do instead of get, giving with each other and with other countries. 
Oh yeah, no, no. So you you listen to our show, Clay. And I, I mean, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step all over you there. I apologize. You listen to our show every week, and we appreciate that very much. Um, but you know how this ends. We give a thumbs up, a thumbs down. Does it require, or do we need more news coverage about Philip Corso and the events that ultimately inspired our next week's episode? Uh, you know, all this stuff kept going. All these these crashes, these this debris, these artifacts, as Corso said, uh, kept going to right pat, which for a great number of years handled all of this. But very rapidly, the government said, hey, we need to be able to send this stuff somewhere to quote a movie and to quote to quote uh, one of my favorite villains in in any type of movie. Wanda, yes. um, uh, they needed a hole that they could throw away the hole. And so next week, we're going to talk about that hole. And that would be Groom Lake in Area 51. However. For this week, for Mr. Corso, the Roswell yeah. incident, yeah. Jerry, thumbs up, thumbs down. We need to hear more you, about you Philip separate. Corso. you got to separate. <laughs> Roswell, thumbs up, more. Corso and his book, thumb down. Gotcha. Brett. I'm, I never thought I would say this, but I'm going to have to agree <laughs> with Jerry on this. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, Woo, it, stepping two, on the two dark points, side. Two points. Like I said, we I think we all believe in Roswell. The the two things that are a sticking point for me, his credibility is impeccable. You can't deny that. There's two things that are kind of weird to me. One, the book was able to be released publicly. That doesn't that sounds a little fishy to me. Two, the timing of the book was right after they came out with Project Mogul in 1994. So the 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 timing was if you're wanting to make as much money as you can, that timing was impeccable. Like Right after, right when Roswell was becoming a big, you know, big story again. So those are the two things, and and that that is the main reason why I would I would I would. I'm gonna go. Clay, I'm what do you think, man? Thumbs way. up, thumbs I down. Roswell and Philip Corso. Voice we've heard from inside regarding the Roswell incident and UFOs in general. Uh, I'm also going to say that at the time of the book's release. The Pentagon bookstore could not keep the book on the shelves. The bookstore in the Pentagon gift shop. That's telling me that people inside the Pentagon wanted to read this book because they knew Corso was working on some crazy shit. And they sold out of that book every time at the Pentagon for months and months and months. These were people on the inside buying this book. To me, that says a lot. And I say thumbs up to Corso, thumbs up to his work, thumbs up to him coming clean with it. And I can't wait to see what else comes out of that filing cabinet because I'm sure there's still work being done, uh, especially with the with the in light of the the metal that we were not able to develop Fantastic. during Ortho's time, and now we've made some breakthroughs on that, tells me that we're still working on stuff that Corso was working on. So, um, I 
I agree. I, I'm actually going to follow along with you, Clay, and and I, I definitely thumbs up on Roswell. I think everybody here agrees that uh, it probably was not a weather balloon. Uh, words matter. They specifically said, "Hey, we recovered a disc." They did not say we recovered a bunch of material. So well, thumbs up for sure on there. Yeah, um, they said both, but the yeah. first story was the truth. Right. Uh, secondly, you know, I, I bring up, here's the thing for me with, with, with Philip Corso. I've been on the fence and, and I wanted to keep an open mind till the very end. And I believe that Corso, because of his credentials and because where he said he was, when he said he was there has all been verified that I absolutely believe what he says. Um, Jerry, you brought up a couple of points about how could an 84-year-old's memory be that impeccable? Um, We know that it was not. And I agree. Um, However, I think that there's enough credibility there for me to give those small indecisions a pass. So two thumbs up for me. Also, just real quick, uh, I'm glad you brought him up because I, I my closing uh, comment at is some point be based we have to talk about Dr. Stephen, Stephen Greer's Greer. work. Uh, so you go right ahead, but I I've got something to say about Stephen Greer. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know when we talk about credibility, I was telling Jerry and, and Brett at dinner before we went on the air that. When he first came on the scene, there wasn't a more credible person to talk about this. And he has really went off kind of the deep end and, and lost that credibility with me. Corso never did. So um, that's all I was going to say with that. Um, I also want to just point out and, and let everyone know, I just got a text alert that well, uh, man, at 100 years old, uh, Henry Kissinger has passed away. May he burnt uh, with John McCain. Very sad. Served under two presidents, was Secretary of State. Huh? Do what? My final statement yeah, is this. Absolutely. And so, I say that I've told this What was to your final kids, statement? We'll let you close it up, tell Clay. it to the listeners today. We, up until this point, and even the footage that has been produced by the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, we still, even though all of us are carrying around these high-tech cameras in our pockets, we have grainy, almost undecipherable footage of these craft. And we've never gotten a good up-close look at them. Even the military footage is very, all we see is a tic-tac or all we see is a shape. We're not seeing definition on any of this stuff. A lot of the folks who are skeptical in the world will not believe this until they see on Fox, on ABC, on NBC, CBS, all your major networks, a live feed of a craft that's very discernible where you can see all of the definition, all the details. Folks, that time is coming. But I caution, I caution all of you, all of the listeners, and pull yourself, pour yourself a stiff drink right before bed, and pull yourself close to the speakers because 
This is your government conspiracy expert telling you that when you see those images, and I'm, I've told my kids this and members of my family this, when you see those images, approach that with a skeptical mind and apply all of your critical thinking skills. Do not buy into the narrative that is going to be thrust upon you immediately. Dissect it, chew it up, digest it, because what you're seeing may not be what they're telling you you're seeing. And it's based on some of Dr. Stephen Greer's work, credible or not, he is of the mind that when you look up in the sky right now, you have to ask yourself a question. If you see an unidentified flying object or IAE or whatever they're calling these things now, yes, you have to ask yourself, is that one of us flying them or is that one of them flying them? Because right now I believe that we have some craft up in the air that we are testing, that we have back engineered. Whether we fly them deep into space or not, I cannot answer that. But I can tell you with some degree of certainty yep. that I don't have a basis of proof on, but just on what I'm seeing and how I know the government operates. The government's telling us this for a reason. And if they put something like that in front of us, maybe it is something to scare the bejesus out of us, like a pandemic or whatever, where they can instill more control, take more liberties away. And whether that's the case or not, I don't know. But what I'm cautioning all listeners to do when that time comes is to go into it with some disbelief, some skepticism, question what you're seeing and use your critical thinking skills and ask yourself who is to gain by coming out with this and then decide for yourself. Cause I don't know, I don't know what you're going to be seeing, but I'm telling you it is of imperative importance that we don't all just buy it. Question. Clay, you're hundred percent right. And to, 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 point to exactly what you're talking about. Uh, NASA just landed within the last little while. Uh, their first and their longest space flight, the X-37B, in a, in a, it's a secret plane. It was in orbit flying around our country unmanned, or, oh, or not our country, our world unmanned, for yeah, 908 days. X-37B, check it out. Guys, we appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you, guys. <laughs> Clay, we appreciate you being with us. We'd love to have you back anytime you want to throw rocks at the government. We, we'd, we'd absolutely love to have you back. I'm um, always In fact, we guys. have several Let shows me. coming up in the future uh, that uh, uh, could use your expertise. Uh, I plan on talking about D.B. Cooper at some point in the future. And much to Jerry's uh, chagrin, uh, uh, Brett and uh, I really want to please, talk about please, the JFK. Please do, because, yes, so, I understand. So, so we it. want to have you in on that show, too. Okay, brother? Thank you.
back, guys. It's an honor. Yeah. And, so uh, I love we, being we, on we here appreciate you. Thank you, thank you, and, thank you for being uh, here. Hope you guys, guys keep growing because uh, this is great, fantastic. Thanks, thanks, Clay. We appreciate it. Yeah. Man, that episode is really interesting. And if you'll stick around for us for just a few commercials, we have another great story to tell you. Hi, this is Ed Locke with USA Mortgage. When it comes to buying a home, the process can be overwhelming and confusing. With so many options, it can be hard to know where to start. That's why it's important to work with a certified mortgage loan originator. I have the knowledge and expertise to guide you through the process and find the best mortgage option for you. I will work with you every step of the way to ensure that you are getting the best deal possible. So if you're looking to purchase or refinance, please reach out to me at 502-680-0953. So don't take on the stress of buying a home alone. Work with me and I will make your dream a reality. Trust the professionals and make your home buying experience a positive one. MLS ID 448908, DAS Acquisition Company, LLC, doing business as USA Mortgage, MLS ID 227262. This is not a commitment to lend. Additional terms and conditions apply. USA Mortgage is equal housing opportunity. If you want us to review or rate your product on air, if you have suggestions for new episodes, awesome ghost stories, or anything else, please reach out to us. Our email address is newsworthywithstephenjerry at gmail.com. Our text number is area code 540-709-1318. And now, back to the story. An ancient and surprising underground city where thousands of people lived. Although the ancient Derinkuyu underground complex is located in Turkish Cappadocia, <laughs> gained popularity in the 1970s when Swiss researcher and author Eric Von Daniken, one of my favorites, Jerry, revealed it to the world through the gold of the gods. Darren Kuyu had long raised questions, especially among archaeologists in his country. It was discovered accidentally when a man knocked down the wall of his basement. Upon arrival, archaeologists revealed that the city was 18 stories deep, and it had everything and ne everything necessary for an underground life, including schools, chapels, it even had stables. Derinkuyu was an underground city in Turkey that was 3,000 years old and once housed almost 20,000 people underground. And Jerry, if you can't see the light, be the light. <laughs>